Good morning, church. My name is Chad Allen. I'm one of the pastors here. And we are going through the book of Luke. And I, I don't know about you, but if you've ever felt like you're inadequate, that you're, you've got failures and, and past uh, mistakes that just weigh on you, man, you're in good company because we're all in that boat. That not a single one of us, we've talked in the past couple of weeks, not a single one of us is perfect, you know? We're all unqualified, but yet God chooses to use us. And it's so exciting to be, to be a part of what God is doing here on the mountain. Last week, you remember Justin talked about um, our responsibility to share the gospel, that God is the one who does the work. He's the one who transforms, changes lives, but he uses us in the process, and as we continue in the book of Luke, we're going to be in chapter 9 today. But before we get there, there were two men on a commercial flight. On the screen, you'll see a, a picture of two guys. You might recognize them, you might not, but the guy on your left is a guy by the name of Dick Bass. Uh, Bass was successful. One of those guys, that it seemed like no matter what he did, he was good at it. In fact, Bass was the first man to scale the seven summits. That means he was the first person to reach the highest point on all seven continents. He climbed Mount Everest at the age of 55. Dude was incredible. He's sitting on an airplane with a seatmate that he doesn't know. That's this other guy. Bass doesn't know who this other guy is, and so Bass begins talking with him, and, and for literally the whole flight... Hours, Bass just shares story after story of adventure that he had, scaling the seven summits of what it was like and the treks that he got into and all these accomplishments that he had made. He really was uh, quite phenomenal. And as the flight was getting ready to come to an end, <laughs> it dawns on Bass that he hasn't let the other guy talk. He doesn't even know his name. And so Bass says, I I'm sorry, I've just been talking about myself this entire time. Well, I, I don't even know, what's your name? The man says, I'm Neil Armstrong. <laughs> have you ever, have you ever been in a situation like that where you didn't realize who you were talking to? The entire conversation would completely change if you knew. Well, that is what is going on in our text today in Luke chapter 9. But before we, before we read God's word, let's just take a moment. Let's slow everything down and let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We know it is living and active. We pray that your word will break us where we need broken, that it will cut us where we need cut, mend us where we need mended. And Father, it would be alive and active in our lives today. We pray this in Jesus' name and all who agree say, amen. Luke chapter 9, verse 18. Now it happened that as he, that's Jesus, was praying alone, the disciples were with him, and he asked them, 
who do the crowds say that I am? And they answered, John the Baptist. But, but others say, Elijah and others, that one of the prophets of old has risen. Then he said to them, but who do you say that I am? And Peter answered, the Christ of God. And he strictly charged and commanded them to tell this to no one, saying, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. And he said to all, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words and of him, the Son of Man will be ashamed when he comes in his glory and the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. But I tell you truly, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. The beginning of this text, we see Jesus pops question. When we think about life's big questions, one of the biggest questions we think is when we say, when someone pops the question. What do we mean by someone pops the question? A young guy is head over heels over his sweetheart, and we'll ask him, did you pop the question? And we know it means, will you marry me? It's interesting to me that the Bible uh, describes our relationship with Christ as a marriage and that the church, his people, are the bride of Christ. Now, I know dudes that trips us out and we think that's kind of weird calling me a bride, but, but the imagery of our relationship with Christ is like a marriage and that we should be faithful that Christ was willing to lay his life down for us, that we should be faithful as a spouse is faithful to him. But there's a bigger question and a bigger question that needs to be answered before you can even get to where you would ask someone. That is who they are. And so Jesus asked the big question, who do the crowds say that I am? It's a loaded question, but I'm sure the disciples, man, they were quick to pounce on this. This was their chance to shine in front of Jesus. They said, Jesus, you, you're not going to believe this. The, the, the crowd's saying, you are John the Baptist. Truly a compliment. Jesus said there was no one greater than John, that no one born of women, that's everyone, was greater than him. Jesus, they are saying, you are the greatest. This is what the ruler Herod thought at the time, that John the Baptist was raised from the dead and his power was at work in Jesus. So the disciples are saying, Jesus, man, the crowds love you. They are saying that you are the greatest. But that's when another disciple pops up and says, oh, but, some, but some are saying that you are Elijah. Elijah, man, he is the prophet of prophets. He is the kingpin, the bigwig, the big cheese, the big kahuna, the big gun, the big will, the, the head honcho, the big enchilada, the you get the idea. He is the prophet of prophets, the forerunner of, of the king messenger. He is Elijah. And then 
Another one says, Jesus, they're, they're saying you're this prophet, that prophet. You're one of the prophets of old that you've come back because Jesus shared a lot in common with them. That all of them, they were hard hitting. They, were, they didn't pull any punches, you know? They spoke the truth. They, they challenged authorities. They challenged the political authorities. They challenged the, the religious authorities of their time. They were hard hitting. But also, they, they paid the price for their message. All of them were, were willing to suffer for the message that they brought, were willing to suffer for the Lord. And here, the crowds are saying, Jesus, you are the greatest. But Jesus asked the biggest question. He asked the disciples, but who do you say that I am? Who do you say that he is? See, this is the biggest question that we can ever ask. That so many people, including the crowds of the time, they, they saw Jesus was good, man. He's great. He's, he, he's a great teacher, a great leader, a great preacher, a great you fill in the blank. Yeah, Jesus is great. But, but Jesus is more. And that's where Peter, Peter says, you are the Christ. The Christ. I, I grew up, I really thought that Jesus Christ, that Christ was Jesus' last name. And I know I'm not the only one to think that, that, that Christ is not Jesus' last name. Christ is a title that belongs to Jesus. Christ would be the Greek word for Messiah. Christ is the, the chosen one, the anointed one. You see, Jews, the, the Jewish hope of the day was that, that Jesus or that God would send a Messiah, that God would send someone to restore Israel, that he would send the Christ, and the Christ would do all of these things. And they had images of, of a Christ riding in on a great stallion the, the, that resembled power. And Jesus didn't come like that. Jesus, when he came in for the big battle, rode a donkey. He didn't come the way they were expecting. They were expecting a Messiah, a Christ, to come in such a way that it would be clear to all that he was the Christ, that he was going to restore the kingdom of Israel. Remember, the Jews at that time, they were under the heavy rule of Rome. Rome was the superpower of the time. Rome sat on the throne. Rome taxed them like crazy. They were just subjects. They weren't free. They weren't their own people. They were in bondage. They were subjects to Rome. But they knew that one day God would send the Christ and the Christ would set them free. The Christ would, would restore Israel to the glory days, the glory days of David, of Solomon, when, when Israel was the superpower. That one of their own would sit on the throne. The Christ would sit on the throne. It wouldn't be someone from Rome. It wouldn't be a Greek. It wouldn't be a Persian. It wouldn't be a Babylonian. It wouldn't be an Assyrian that the Christ would, would sit on his throne and, and restore Israel. But God had a bigger plan. God was doing more. The Christ was doing more than just restoring or redeeming Israel. The Christ was redeeming the world. And Peter says, you are the Christ. That's what nobody got, nobody saw. But he see. 
Jesus people, was a Jesus person, we see Jesus as more. Jesus didn't say, Peter, you are just brilliant. You put it together. No, in Matthew's account of this, in Matthew chapter 16, Jesus says, Peter, man, I know that ain't you. God revealed it to you. I'm not, not making light, but we miss. We don't just know who Jesus is. We miss who Jesus is unless God reveals him to us. John chapter 6, verse 44, Jesus said, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. Man's best answer was that Jesus was the greatest, that he was a great teacher, leader, preacher. But all that, what the crowds were saying, it was quite, it was incredibly complimentary, but it was quite inadequate because Jesus is more. You see, we need God's help to understand who Jesus is. We need God to reveal who Jesus is so that we would see Jesus is more than what we thought, that Jesus is more than than man's best answer. We need God to show us. And, and, and so God's answer to the big question is the Bible. And that the Bible reveals to us who Jesus is. In John chapter 5, verse 39, Jesus is telling them, you, you search the scriptures because you think that by them you have eternal life. But, but who does the scriptures point to? The scriptures point to me. You see, the whole Bible, that's God's big answer to the big question is who Jesus is. It all points to Jesus, that Jesus is more. And that as a Jesus person, we should see Jesus is more than anything we can dream. Jesus is more than anything that man can come up with. Jesus is more. And we don't have time to go through all this. But, but it is amazing, and we can only see it through God, God's power, and that he reveals it to us, that Jesus is more. The disciples didn't get this until after the resurrection. The disciples didn't put it together. Even after the resurrection, Jesus is pointing out how the scriptures all the way from Moses to the prophets is, is about him. We get that. We think we get this, but we don't. It goes deeper and deeper. We find Jesus is more. Jesus is more. Jesus is more than all we can fathom. Jesus is more than all we can comprehend. Jesus is more. This week, our prep team asked the question, who is Jesus? And how did you arrive to that conclusion? How did you get there? You got to understand the prep team, uh, they do good work, but man, they love to have fun, you know? We love to laugh. But when that question came up, who is Jesus and how did you get there? To that understanding, the room changed. The room changed. It was story after story of people saying Jesus is more, of their lives were, were broken, so, uh, lives full of pain, full of hurt, of loss, of addiction, of bondage and chains. 
lives of brokenness, lives ruled by sin where everything around seemed like death. But the room changed when someone said, every single one of them said, but Jesus, but Jesus. Everything changed because of Jesus. When Jesus became my Lord, when Jesus became in control, when Jesus, when I saw Jesus is more, everything changed. Hope was brought in to the hopeless. Comfort was giving to, given to the un, inconsolable. You see, <laughs> when you see, when you see that Jesus is more, you can join the chorus of people who say Jesus is more because Jesus is Lord. Jesus is Lord. We don't make him Lord. It doesn't depend what I think, what you think, what anybody thinks. Jesus is still who he is. He is Lord. Whether we choose to acknowledge it or not, well, that's a different question. But Jesus is Lord. Jesus is more than just a man. You see, we're all going to answer this question. We all, we all are deciding who we're going to follow. We are going to follow someone or something. We are going to follow. The question is, will we follow Jesus? And when we see Jesus is more, we say, of course we're going to follow him because he's more than anything else we can follow. And so Jesus, in verse 23, he says, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. Forever would save his life, will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? Now, when Jesus said, if you want to come after me, you got to pick up your cross, deny yourself and pick up your cross, they had a totally different perception than what we do today. The cross to them was a crass instrument of death. We see a, a cute, pretty little piece of jewelry, a trinket. But no, the cross was a crass instrument of death that the Romans had, had perfected crucifixion. That crucifixion was a shameful, humiliating. It was a, a, a criminal's death. Rarely, rarely would a Roman citizen be crucified because it wasn't a dignified way to die. That, that crucifixion was perfected by the Romans to where it was truly excruciating. They had to come up with another word for what the pain was, and that's the word excruciating. It come, comes from crucifixion. From, from, it comes out of that the crucifixion was so excruciating that when they would have thought of a cross, they wouldn't think of this cute little piece of jewelry. And so I'm sure if I was one of the disciples, I'd be standing there thinking, oh, what in the world? Does picking up a cross have to do with you, Jesus? Because if he's the Messiah, he's going to sit on the throne. They're not going to kill him, right? And Jesus explains this to him, but, but tell no one, right? Because God's plan was different than their plan, than their expectations. But what does a cross have to do with following Jesus? The kindest, most gracious, compassionate, loving person to ever walk the face of the earth. You see, 
If Jesus is more, then we have to die to follow him. We cannot be Lord of our lives if we're going to make him Lord. Every single one of us, if we want to follow him, need to deny ourselves, pick up our cross, because we are in a battle. There is a battle in all of us that rages between the flesh, what this body desires, our sinful desires, and what the Holy Spirit wants for our life. There's this battle going on, and even Paul talks about this, that the good I want to do, I don't do, and what I don't want to do, I do, and who, who can rescue me? Who can save me? I'm just a messed up man, and that's where there, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, that he redeems us. Our bodies haven't been fully redeemed. This isn't what you're going to see in heaven, so don't worry. You're not going to look at this forever. But one day, I'm going to be redeemed, and my body won't crave what I, the things that are contrary to what the Spirit wants. I think, I don't know if you've ever watched a boxing match. Uh, boxing matches, you, you know, they go 12 rounds. The heavyweights will go 12 rounds. And I want you to imagine for, for just a moment that you know who's going to win the fight, that a guy is just dominating the opponent. But round after round it goes. And every once in a while, the opponent will get a punch in. And maybe he'll even win one round, maybe two, but the most majority of the fight goes to the guy, the, the boxer that is dominating. <laughs> At the end of the fight, after that 12th round, when that bell rings, they announce, they look at the scorecard, and they announce who won the fight. We already knew who was going to win the fight, but it wasn't announced. That's what I see for us. We are fighting from a place of victory, that we have won the fight. There is this battle between the flesh and the spirit, and every once in a while, the enemy gets a, a jab here and there, a sucker punch. We might even lose a round, but we are fighting from victory and knowing that when the scorecard is announced, we are going to be declared winners with Christ. You see... This battle rages, and that's why Jesus says we have to pick up this cross. We have to pick up this cross because there needs to be a, a death. If you notice that verse 23, Jesus says, if anyone would come after me, right, he must deny himself and pick up his cross and follow me. Jesus is using different words for coming after me and for follow me. That, that the, the coming after and follow me are, are different. The follow me is a deeper uh, follow. We do this in our language too, that, that, that we say we're following on social media. We're not really following them. I mean, we might know about them, know what they're into or something like that, but we're not truly, we don't truly know them. We're not truly following them. You see this follow that Jesus had in mind was a, a joining, a uniting, a combining into one. The, 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 the follow here is, is a cleaving, that a Jesus person must, must cleave, cleave to Jesus. But cleave is a funny word, and is a strange word in the, in the English, English language. It has some strange words. Words where it has more than one meaning, and yet the meanings are completely opposite. Like the word dust. Have you ever thought about the word dust? It has multiple meanings. Dust is like the particles that accumulate over time, 
right? And so then what do we do when dust accumulates? We dust it. <laughs> One's to remove the dust and one is the dust. Opposite meaning, off, you know? Off can mean to power on or activate, and it can also mean to power down. That you shut the alarm off, you shut the alarm off because the alarm went off. Right. All right, well, that's the way cleave is. Cleave has multiple meanings. Cleave um, is to split apart. And that a Jesus person splits apart from their, their old life, from the world and their old life. That, part of cleave, that meaning of cleave, the Christian does by denying themselves and picking up their cross. There has to be a death. Galatians um, chapter 2 um, I'm sorry, Galatians chapter 5 says, And those who belong to Christ Jesus have, here's the word, crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. See, we have to pick up the cross, crucify that, because we need to cleave. We need to, to split apart from that which we were. But then the second meaning of cleave is to, to adhere, to join together, to combine, to stick together. This the Jesus person must cleave to Jesus. That means we're uniting with him. That a Jesus person is more than a follower. We're not just following. We are uniting our lives. We are finding our lives in Christ. That's what Galatians chapter 2, Paul says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. This type of cleaving is what we see in the Bible with uh, Genesis chapter uh, with a husband and wife. That a man would leave his father and mother, what, cleave to his wife, right? And the two would become one. That, that, that cleave wasn't saying split apart. No, they are already split apart. It's to bring the two parts together. It's this, compos comp it's this, this idea of integration. Integration is taking the parts. It, and bringing it together to form a whole. Integration brings the many parts and combines them. And that's what following Jesus means. That we are more than followers and that we are integrating our life with Jesus. We, the parts of our lives are given to him. And that we find our lives in him. Our hearts, our, our, our desires, our, our passions are crucified and combined with Jesus so that what Jesus wants, we want. When we integrate our lives with Jesus, it changes everything. Everything changes when we integrate our life with Christ. Everything changes in us. When I say everything changes when we follow Jesus, and some of us love that, we love that. We want to we hear more of that. But we don't want to hear that it's our life that needs to change. I think of the rich young ruler in Mark chapter 10. He had life going on for him, man. He, he had it all. He was rich. He was powerful. He was youthful. People respected him. And he comes to Jesus and says, what do I need to do for eternal life? <laughs> And it says, Jesus looks at him, he loves him, and he says, there's one thing you lack. Go and sell your possessions, give the money to the poor, come and follow me. 
We don't know what he decided, but the Bible says he went away sad. Uh, this, this guy had it going for him. He had it all. He had grown up in church. He was a good guy. He was living the commandments. But instead of hearing how great, keep doing, keep doing what you're doing, Jesus looks at him in love and says, this is what you need. This is one thing you lack. I don't know if you are feeling like you're missing something. But I'll tell you this. What you're missing isn't something. What you're missing is Jesus. You don't need your next fix. You need Jesus. You don't need a better job. You need Jesus. You don't need a spouse or a new spouse. You need Jesus. You don't need a bigger house. You need Jesus. You don't need a, a better career. You need Jesus. You don't need, you fill in the blank. You see, there is one thing we all lack, and that is Jesus. And there is no eternal life without him. You see, without Jesus, huh, uh, we don't have a chance. And the guy missed this. He missed the lack of seeing Jesus is more, of loving Jesus and willing to give up everything in order to follow him because he is more. The man missed this. Jesus is the only way to life. And if we don't have Jesus, then we don't have life. Not life to the fullest. Not life that God intended. You see, this is where Jesus changes everything in us. We are made new. We are new creations. We are combined with him. We are disciples when we follow. We're more than followers that we find our lives in him, that he changes us. And, you know, sometimes I think we get this backwards and we think baptism is, is the end. I talk to people and they say, oh, I, I, I've made Jesus Lord, but I'm not ready to get baptized because I da, da, da. All right, hear me out. Baptism is the beginning of it's not the end. It's not the final goal that you know you've arrived. It's the beginning of the journey. That in Romans 6, it says that we're baptized. That that's where a watery grave, like we're buried with Christ, raised to walk. And he says raised to walk in the newness of life. He didn't say raised to walk just the way you've been walking. He doesn't say raised to, to keep doing what you've been doing. Raised to walk in the newness of life. You see, we are made new. If we are in Christ, when we integrate our life with Christ, we are made new. We are new creations. God changes it. When we integrate our lives with Jesus, everything changes. It changes in us and that we're made new. It changes us and what we want, our desires change. The rich young ruler missed it. He didn't want Jesus. He wanted what Jesus could do for him, but he didn't want his life to change because, well, he didn't see his need for Jesus. You see, when we integrate our lives with Christ, we see what our wants, our desires change, that we want what God wants. We desire what God desires, that there is no wholeness apart from him. So, if we're going to follow Jesus the way he meant, we need to be willing to integrate our entire life with Jesus. Integrating our whole life with Jesus. There, there's so much more to life than just what meets the eye. I love how Dallas Willard points out, you know, you don't just have a soul, you are a soul. You are a soul that has a body. We get that backwards sometimes, think we're a body who has a soul. No, we are a soul. And that, if we, I want you to imagine four circles, four concentric circles. These four circles would represent you. That at the very core, the center circle, there would be the will. The will is, 
is your ability to choose. It's your ability to exercise authority and wanting what you want. The will is your very core. It's the power center. And that at your will, uh, that's, that's where you set your desires. That's where everything for you, uh, when, when God said uh, God created man to, uh, to exercise dominion, this is what he's talking about. He gave us a will and we greatly value our will, our ability to choose, the ability to say yes or no. We value that in ourself and we value that in others. So we think, well, why don't we just tell our will, follow Jesus and everything will be good? Well, the will is limited. It's powerful, but it's limited. It's good at simple and long-term commitments like, like deciding who you're going to marry or where to move to. But the will is horrible at overriding habits of behaviors, of patterns and attitudes. It's horrible at trying to change that. You don't believe the will is good at trying to change that? Just ask yourself if you've ever gone against your better judgment. Ask yourself that the next time you're, you're I don't know, eating your second bowl of ice cream or eating a box of donuts. You know, ask yourself, do you ever go against your, your, your better judgment? Well, you see, that's the will. The will has that power. But then the next circle, the one out from that is our mind. Now, the mind, the ancients would say, that's the, where thoughts and where feelings come from. Our minds crave to be at peace. At peace. Our, our minds actually rewire themselves in order to not to have to exert energy. That, have you ever found yourself, you've done something, like you drove through a red light and you didn't remember seeing if it was red or green? That's because you, you're... you're your brain went to autopilot. It takes habitual things so you don't have to spend energy on it because the mind craves to be at peace. And so when we think worldly thoughts, we are hurting ourselves. We are, are breaking ourselves down because when we think about worldly thoughts, that brings death. That's what Paul says in Romans, the mind controlled by the flesh is death, but the spirit brings life and peace. Our minds crave peace. The next circle is bigger. Well, that's our body. See, our bodies are the power pack of our will. We have our will at the center, and then our bodies will carry that out, that we will be intentional in doing something. We'll, we'll, we'll do something because our will says to do it. Our body will carry it out. But then all of this combines into this big circle, and that's what is soul. The soul is who you are, all combined, the integrated pieces of you to form you. And the only way our soul will ever be whole is when our soul is in Jesus. That's what Jesus is saying. If you want to save your life, you've got to lose it. If you lose your life to me, you'll save it. But how many of us try to hold on to this world? I read the story of a rich businessman who built just a, a huge corporate empire. His company was very successful. However, money was his number one priority. None of his employees felt valued. His children knew that they came second to work and money. Now, now, he was never mean and said that to them, but, but people know what's a priority. People know what you value by how you spend your, your time and energy, what makes you smile. The day finally came for him to retire, and he 
He buys his mansion overlooking the ocean, and it is beautiful. He's got the financial security that he always dreamed of having, but everything wasn't as he expected. About a year after he retired, he had a stroke. He lost the ability to to function, really. He was confined to a wheelchair. He, he, He had to breathe through an oxygen tank. It wasn't what he had hoped, but he still had all his money. He actually found himself alone. His children didn't come visit him. His workers didn't come visit him. His wife had left him. And so the mansion that he always dreamed of felt more like a cage. Yeah, he had all he wanted. But it wasn't enough. How many of us are pursuing the world and Jesus said you can gain the whole world but what good is it if you lose yourself when we follow Jesus we find Jesus is more than anything this world can offer Jesus brings us true satisfaction Jesus brings us true meaning Jesus brings us true life true joy it changes everything in us and integrating Our lives with Jesus changes everything, not just in us, but even around us. It changes others. How many of us have have seen this, that we all have a someone, a someone that, that led us to Jesus, a someone that made it real to us, that it wasn't just a story we read in a book, but it was real, that Jesus is more. How many of us, many of us, I'm sure, had parents, Parents and grandparents have such a a profound role in sharing the gospel. Some of us are here today because we had spouses. Spouses that believed Jesus was more and Jesus is more and lived it day in and day out that our spouse brought us. Some of us are someone is our own children. I know a, a dynamic couple in our church just super and huge they're huge in the ministry of what God's doing here on the mountain and it was their child their child was there someone to lead them to Jesus is more you see when we integrate our lives with Jesus we see he changes us completely we are made new our wants and desires are different he changes us completely from the inside out And that even our surroundings, those around us, change. But the question remains, who do you say that Jesus is? Who is Jesus to you? I want to go over a couple of questions for us to follow up this week. The question is, Do you know that Jesus is more? I mean, really know. To to know that you know that you know Jesus is more. Passage to read would be Colossians chapter uh, 1, verses 15 to uh, 19, 20. That read this section, you see, Jesus is more than we can comprehend. Do you really know that Jesus is more? Another question might be, how are you more than a follower? 
Are you just lightly following Jesus or are you truly cleaving to him and following him by joining him, being united with him? How are you more than a follower? And then also, what needs to change in your life? What, what cross must you pick up today? What's your cross? You know what it is. It's the first thing that came to your mind. And if you're sitting there and thinking, man, I, I, I really don't know what my cross is, okay? Well, let's go back and see. Well, maybe we're not sure about Jesus being more, that we haven't found the desires that are in conflict with his desires. You see, picking up this cross is a choice we make because we know Jesus is more, Jesus is better. He is what we want. He is our everything. And that we we choose to pick up the cross. So often we use this terminology like it's our cross to bear, like we are the victims. No, this is intentionally choosing to pick up the cross because we see Jesus is so much better that Jesus can offer more than whatever my burden is, whatever my cross is. That I want to choose to follow Jesus and I choose to deny myself, pick up my cross and follow him. You know, we've, we're going to sing a song in just a minute. And so often I think we just check out. You know, the preacher closes his Bible and we're done. Don't check out. I mean, we've spent the, the last 40 minutes talking about, about who Jesus is, of Jesus being more. But the question remains, who is Jesus to you? We've sung songs. We've prayed, we've read scripture, but yet Jesus is still asking the question, who do you say I am? Will you give your heart to him? Will you make him Lord? Give your heart to him, make him Lord. Who do you say I am?